Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter two. We're talking about the attributes of God. And if you were to do a man on the street interview in downtown Indianapolis, and you asked a person who is not a Christian, what is God like? My guess is they would not say God is omniscient. They wouldn't say God is omnipotent. They wouldn't say God is omnipresent. Those are the attributes that we looked at last week. My guess is that they would say God is love. I guess you would say that. Even if you're here and you're not yet a Christian and I were to ask you, what do you think God is like? You'd probably say God is love and you'd be right. And yet, the fact of the matter is, is that both Christians and non-Christians, while we know that is true, I'd suggest to you, we probably don't know the full depth of what that means. We know that the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We get that God is love, we get that he's full of mercy, but we need to dig a little deeper on this attribute of God's love and the attribute of his mercy. And that's what we're gonna do today. We're in week four of a series of nine messages on the attributes of God. Next week, Pastor T.C. Taylor will talk with us about God's sovereignty and the fact that he is infinite from Psalm 90. Today, what I want to try and do is help you understand what the love and mercy of God is and then also why it me- what it means. I want for you, by the end of this message, to be able to have something within you to say, I love God's mercy, and I need more of God's mercy. For you to be reminded that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God ready to pour out mercy and grace on your life today. So we're gonna start by looking at the the need for God's love. In order to understand the the depth and the, the beauty of what God has lavished upon us in terms of this love and mercy, we have to start with the backdrop or the unworthiness of his affection toward human beings. You see, it's one thing to set your love and affection on something that would seem to warrant it. If you were to say, I love my kids, well, it makes sense, you should love your kids. If you're like, I love skunks, you'd be like, what? You like skunks? I like a good meal, that makes sense. I like root canals, what, right? So there's things that we love and things that we don't. In order to understand the things the Bible tells us about God's mercy and grace, we need to understand who we are and who we were. The fact of the matter is is that God has set his love on helpless people. Look at chapter two and verse one. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So there's four characteristics that we find in this text. The first characteristic is that we were, or maybe some of you are, spiritually dead. The Bible paints this bleak moral picture here of human beings in their natural condition as being dead in the trespasses. That word means to miss the mark, so it's the idea that God has a moral target and to, to trespass means that you miss it. 
We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The word sin means to fall away, like there's a path and you wander off. So we've, we've erred in two ways. We've missed the mark and we've fallen off the way. And this means that human beings, while we are all physically alive, and for those who are apart from Christ, there is a spiritual deadness to our existence which then expresses itself in the wrong things that we do. And those sinful actions are just merely the expression of our sinful alienation from God. This darkness of depravity is settled in upon us so that there is a bad situation that human beings find themselves in and according to the Bible, there is no solution found in and of ourselves. We can't fix our own problem. Our minds are darkened, our hearts are hardened, and we are God's enemies, and we like it that way. That's the condition of mankind. The Bible describes it in Ephesians 4, verse 18, is this. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So the problem of sin is so significant that it creates a hardness of heart where it's hard to even reach into you. Your, your understanding is darkened. You, you go after things that are wrong and you're fully convinced that it's the right thing to do. And the fact of the matter is either you don't know or you should know and you don't, but the ignorance and the darkness and the hardness of heart all collude together to put us in a position where we are spiritually dead. Secondly, there's wrong influences. We need God's love because, verse two, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There is a gravitational pull toward our culture. It says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. There is this gravitational pull, this strong current that pulls you in the wrong direction. That our lost condition isn't just a problem individually, but it's a problem collectively. That our depravity happens in a mob. Just mark it down that because of this, you can find anyone to tell you you're right if you search long enough. You can find someone to justify your godless behavior. You can find someone to justify your hard-heartedness. You can find someone to tell you, you should be mad about that. You should be hurt. You should never, ever, ever have someone have, treat you that way or, or talk to you that way. And you can then let allow that bitterness to create a barrier between you and everything spiritual. There's a spiritual deadness, there's wrong influence. Third, there's broken desires. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The idea is that our desires are fundamentally opposed to God. It's crazy, but what God wants, we don't, and what we want, God forbids. And the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body, the, the, the longings of the mind, all have this, this fundamental brokenness to them that we are terribly creative in how we express our sinfulness. And finally, we have a corrupted nature. Verse three says this. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The summary of our helpless spiritual position is found here in verse three, that the problem is not merely what we desire, the problem is not what we think, and the problem is not simply what we do. That our problem penetrates to the depth, the very foundation of our humanity, that our identity is broken. In other words, our understanding of who we are, of what is important, 
Our, our understanding of what is right and what is wrong is fundamentally flawed. And you might think, man, this is a dark message already. And I promise you that it will turn the corner in this text, but the fact of the matter is, is that that's who we are. If you're a Christian, that's who you were. And you can look back and you know how accurate that summary is of where you were before you put your faith in Jesus. You can trace back the story of your life and you can see now more clearly how, how absolutely broken your desires were. How heading the wrong direction was part of the norm of your experience. How you found friends to affirm that this was the right path. And then miraculously God brought, broke in and now you look at your life and you can hardly believe that you used to think that way. If you're here today and not yet a Christian, I want you to understand that understanding how the Bible describes you is the starting point of what it means to believe and know the gospel and to trust in Jesus. And what's remarkable is that despite the fact that all of this is true about humanity, God still sets his love on us and offers us mercy. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this, listen carefully, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. So to understand the greatness of God's love and to understand the depth of his mercy, we have to start with what is the need? And that's the picture. Secondly, this text helps us to understand the core of God's love. We find that the greatest evidence of God's love, the greatest display of his mercy is seen in the gospel. Verse four. Oh, two words that are so critically important, two words that are, are so filled with hope. After having this dark picture in verses one to three, here the Bible then says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. These words, but God, demonstrate God's willingness to intervene in our lives that despite the waywardness, despite the brokenness, this, 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 despite the, the, the lack of conformity to God's will and his word, he intervenes. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this, the objects of God's love are <clears throat> rational creatures who have broken God's law, whose nature is corrupt in God's sight, and who merit only condemnation and final banishment from his presence. He says, it is staggering that God should love sinners, and yet it is true. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth, nothing in mankind that could attract it or prompt it. God loves people because he has chosen to love them. And the core of his love is seen in the gospel. Verse four continues, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. So the way in which we see the greatness of God, the way in which we see the richness of God's love and the richness of his mercy is displayed in none other more clearly than in the sending of Jesus and his provision for our sins. His mercy here is described as rich. 
His love is described as great. How rich, how great. Charles Spurgeon pastored in London in the 19th century. He said this, God's love is infinite, you cannot measure it. His mercy is so great that it forgives great sins of great sinners after great lengths of time and raises us up to great enjoyments in the great heaven of the great God. His love is undeserved. There was no right in the sinner's part to the kind consideration of the Most High. He says it is rich, meaning this mercy is cordial toward your drooping spirits, a golden ointment, he says, to your bleeding wounds, a heavenly bandage to your broken bones. He says mercy is never failing. Listen to this, especially if you've come to church weary and discouraged today. It will never leave you. Mercy will be with you in temptation to keep you from yielding. It will be with you in trouble to keep you from sinking. It will be with you living to be the light and life of your countenance and with you dying to be the joy of your soul when earthly comfort is ebbing fast. So his mercy and his grace are inexhaustible. And the greatest expression of this mercy and grace is found in verses five and six, even, 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 even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses. How great is God's love, how rich is his mercy? It shows up in this way, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what he does is out of the wealth of his mercy, out of the immensity of his love, he raises spiritually dead people to life. He takes eyes that were blinded and he opens them so they see the gospel, they see who Jesus is, they see themselves. He draws them to himself, he welcomes them into his loving arms and calls them his sons and daughters even though previously they were his enemy. He takes all of our sins and pours it out on Christ in order so that his forgiveness can be balanced on the scales of divine justice. And what's more, he blesses then his children with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This means that out of the love and mercy of God, he promises to take care of us, to guarantee our eternal dwelling with him, to never abandon us, and to always provide the mercy and grace that we need. And he says it this way, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in order so that we would know that God's promises to us are so sure that we can count them as already completed and fulfilled. It would be like a friend for whom you ask a favor. Hey, can you do something for me? And imagine that she says, done, done. Even though it's not done, but it's done. What is she communicating? She's attempting to communicate such eagerness to fulfill your desire that you should consider it to be already accomplished. Friends, this is the nature of God's love and mercy towards those who are in Christ. That the promise of God toward you is so sure, listen, the atonement of Jesus so complete and the divine love of God so deep for you that you should consider God's purposes for your life and eternity as already completed. That means that if you're here today and you're discouraged and you don't know how something's gonna work out in your life, God's already in your future, it's already done. 
It means that the trial, the difficulty that you're walking through, the thing that you're looking at and saying, how in the world is this going to work out? You need to know that in Christ it already has. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus were the greatest demonstrations of God's love. And so if you come to church today and you have an enormous burden on your shoulders and you're weary and you're concerned about something, and I understand huge burdens that rest upon your shoulders, I'm not diminishing the emotional significance of what it is that you're wrestling with. All that I'm saying is this, that if God showed his love and mercy to you through Christ, then surely he can help you with a job. If God dealt with all of your sin at the cross, then surely he knows where your wayward son or daughter is and can reach them. If, if God's dealt with all of your sin and poured out all of his mercy and grace in the person and work of Jesus, then surely, even though you're fighting illness and difficulty, you know that even if you don't make it, you will make it in the end. This is what the Bible says in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says this, here's the comparison, listen. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God's mercy and grace shows up in this moment of the gospel, then surely his mercy and grace shows up in every other way possible. The cross is the place where we see the core of God's love. Now, for some of you who are here today, this is a fundamental question, this issue of God's love, because you've, you've never trusted Christ. And so, all of what I've said is true, but it doesn't yet apply to you, and it can. Do, do you realize, if you're not a Christian, how, how much grace and mercy God has already applied to your life? You're here, you're alive. Surely your life hasn't been perfect, but you can see the kindness of God in some way in your life. Do you know that that kindness, even the kindness of you being here this morning, is meant to lead you to repentance? It's designed to point you towards something greater that you need? All those good things are designed to point you to a God who loves you, a God who wants to rescue you. A God who even today wants you to know that the greatest problem is not your circumstances, not your family background, not the relationship that you're in, not even the addiction that you're stuck in. Your greatest need is to be freed from you. And that's the way in which God pours out mercy. He saves us from ourselves. So that's the core of God's love. We saw the need of God's love. Now, what's the purpose of God's love? God's mercy and love are not designed to highlight the recipients. On the contrary, God's love comes to sinful human beings despite our unworthiness. Look at verse 7. So that, so here's why all this has taken place, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what is the aim? What is the purpose? Why does God do this? Why does he pour out his love and mercy? Why does a God full of love and full of mercy demonstrate that in the world? Well, the reason is so that we can stand in awe of what God is like. 
See, there are, there are some attributes that might kind of just blow our minds from a philosophical perspective, like God's sovereignty or God's transcendence. But when it comes to God's love and his mercy, these attributes remind us how incredibly kind God has been to us, how kind he's been to us individually. He loved you before you ever loved him. He rescued you from yourself when there was no other hope. And my guess is that if you're a Christian, you could tell us the story of the way in which God demonstrated his love to you. You could tell me of of what happened in your life, the way that God wooed you to himself. And what's remarkable is that's not just your story. Every single Christian has that story, that God has lavished his love not just on you, but on all of us. So God has not just been kind to a few, he's been kind and merciful to all. In fact, when verse seven says, his kindness toward us in Christ, he's referring there to the church. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says this, throughout time and in eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. So you know what we are? We are not just a church. We are a society of pardoned rebels. That's a great statement, isn't it? Wish I had coined that. That's a great shirt, the society of pardoned rebels, College Park Church, right? That's, that's awesome. Welcome to the society of pardoned rebels, But you know why God pardons rebels? It is so that the world can see how beautiful his grace is. Friends, this is why the church gathers on a weekly basis. It is to remind one another and to rehearse how good and merciful God has been to us. Because here's what's happened. All week long, you've been told all sorts of things internally and externally as why you are the center of the universe and as to why you ought not to display the goodness of his grace. So when we gather together, we remind one another of the mercy and love of God. We treat one another with the same kind of love and mercy that God has bestowed upon us. As we gather together, we are reminded that if this is the way that God has treated me, then this is the way I need to treat others. So let me ask you, did people see godliness in you this last week? Did they see the very character of God in your actions? Did you platform the beauty of God's love and mercy? Or would there be people in your world who are shocked that you're in this room today? You go to church? Well, that seems right you ought to. I just can't believe it, right? (laughs) Do you have a spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation? Do you have a heart that is ready to forgive, that bestows grace upon people in the way in which you have been graced? But all week long, there's this terrible temptation to think, no, 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 I'm the exception to the rule. I should be treated better than I deserve. I should be treated in a way that makes much of me. And what the Bible comes in and it says, don't you know who you are and what God has done for you? And reminds us the lavished mercy and grace that has come to us should then transform how we treat one another and how we live. Were you patient this week? Were you long-suffering, even this morning? Some of you got to church, you sinned all the way here. (laughs) Praise God you're here, but why not just turn to your spouse right now or your friend and say, I'm so sorry. And then you ought to forgive them immediately because of what we're talking about this morning if you're sitting next to someone. Did you give people the benefit of the doubt? 
Did you believe the best about others? You see, God's love and mercy towards you are part of a bigger agenda. God aims to show the world his glory. He aims to do it through the church, this individual, this society of rebels who've been pardoned, who have tasted and seen the effects of God's love. Some of you are here today and you just need to be reminded that God has loved you and has been merciful to you when you didn't deserve it because you have really hard people in your life. And it's almost like they've drained the account. And can I just remind you that God's account for you is never drained. Some of you are here today, you're tired. The weariness of life, the burdens, the challenge, the scary things that are in front of you. And there may have been a time in this last week when you really thought, I, I just don't think that I can do this anymore. For some of you, tragically, that's just not about a situation, that's about your whole life. And you've actually thought, I just wanna like, check out permanently. And you've thought about some things. Can I just remind you, you never run out of God's mercy. Well, the devil wants you to believe that you have, but you haven't. It's impossible. Finally, we find here the effect of God's love. What does this do? What does this do? Our text concludes with this beautiful and compelling statement regarding the way Christians should think about their relationship with God and then how they think about themselves. In other words, if God is full of love and full of mercy, then how do we think about relating to God? Verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your doing, it is the gift of God. So first, this, this text just reminds us that if God's love and his mercy are that great, then it means that human beings are saved by placing their hope in God's promise, by placing their confidence in his love and placing their eternal rest in God's mercy through the work of Jesus on their behalf. In other words, they become, you become a Christian when you wake up and realize, I can't do this. I'm helpless. Have mercy on me, Lord. That's how you get into the Christian life. But then the problem is there's so many people who think, that's the last time I'm gonna say that. No, 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 no. No. All your life as a Christian is experiencing the beautiful irony of saying, I can't do this. I can't raise my kids. I can't love my spouse. I can't battle through my temptations. I can't find fulfillment in my work. I don't know how to manage my singleness. I don't know what to do with what they've said about me. If you keep running into those things, you're helpless, you're helpless, you're helpless, you're helpless. If you come to church this morning and you feel helpless, you are right where you should be. Because Christianity is fundamentally a group of people who have found hopelessness in themselves and the full helpfulness of Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of him. It means that grace is so amazing because it becomes the conduit of God's mercy and grace to helpless people. Secondly, this text makes it very clear that our works do not create God's love and mercy. Your works don't work. That's the point. It says it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. So our actions are not just not the solution, our actions are actually part of the problem. Because what happens is the more that you do, 
You think you earn God's favor, and the more you think you earn God's favor, then the better you feel about yourself, when the reality is you're, you think your stock's going up, and the reality is the further your stock goes up, the further it goes down in God's mind and heart. What this text reminds us is that God's mercy is not applied to your account because you're good enough. So that means, friend, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, God doesn't, doesn't matter what you've done in your past, doesn't matter how bad it is or how recent it's been, the fact of the matter is God's mercy and grace is available to all, anyone who would simply say, Jesus, have mercy on me. And then finally, this passage obliterates boasting. Verse nine, in light of all of this, it would just be crazy for somebody to walk away from Ephesians 2 and go, I am awesome. <laughs> this text, it just slays boasting. It says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The love and mercy of God have come to you because of Jesus. And if that love and mercy is applied to your account, despite, of, despite what you've done, it ends boasting. If love and mercy cleanse you from all your sins, it makes you enthralled with Jesus, not yourself. And then, after you come to faith in Christ, as you apply more and more mercy to your life as God pours it out, you begin to see that you don't need Jesus just once, but you need the life of Jesus living in you, which is why Jesus said, come to me all you who are weak and heavy laden. He didn't say, come to me those of you who are perfect. Come to me those of you who work hard. Come to me those of you who are lifting up your own burdens. He said what? Come to me those who are weak and heavy laden. And what does he say? I will give you rest. Why rest? Because your hope now completely depends on him. Paul asked the Corinthian church, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is, nothing. Friends, everything we have, everything we are, everything we hope for the future, every ounce of sustaining grace that we have right now is completely and entirely owing to God's love and mercy. So the effect is that God's love and mercy should make us humble, so deeply humble. Christians ought to be the most humble people in the world because we know ourselves. We know how bad we are, and yet we know how great Christ is. But you know what's more? Is that it should also not just make us humble, it should also make us hungry for more of God's grace and mercy and love. Hebrews 4 tells us that since we have a high priest, we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that, here's what this means. It means that if you're in need this morning and you have an, an outlier sort of issue in your life or maybe something's rolling around in your soul that you don't know what to do with or you got the sin issue that's hard for you to be able to battle or you're just coming in with this, this unanswered prayer request, the Bible says you can come boldly to the throne of grace and say, God, I need mercy. I need mercy. Some of you stop praying about particular things or stop praying at all because you either have forgotten or you've chosen to not remember by virtue of a hardness of heart that God is the supplier of all that we need. He's full of mercy, he's full of grace, he's full of love. 
Jude 121 says to keep praying so that we keep ourselves in the love of God. There's something about us crying out to him, something about us appealing to him, something about us saying to him, God, I need you, I need you, I need you, that keeps us in the love of God. You stop saying I need you, you squirt out from underneath your understanding of God's love. It doesn't mean God's love is diminished, it means your understanding is now, there's a barrier in it. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you put your faith in Jesus, not just the concept of Jesus, but in the person of Jesus who loves you. It means that we need to become like the man in Luke 8, the blind man on the road, who as Jesus is walking by, he just, he forgets what anybody else would think. He doesn't care about any other situations that are around him, and he simply cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He cries out, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy. In what area do you need, do you need to cry out to the God who owns all mercy, has an ineffable amount of grace and love? What is it in your life today that you need to cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, have mercy. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. How do you anchor your heart to God's love and his mercy? How do you connect your soul to the very heart of the love and mercy of God, it is by calling out to him. And when the love of God and the mercy of God comes, it can change everything. You don't believe that? Well, if you're a Christian, it changed everything when the mercy and grace of God came to you and you became a follower of his. The Bible says God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even, even, even while we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. My dear friends, this is, this is the love and mercy of God. Father, we pray that now you, by your spirit, would help us to understand the significance, the application, and the ramifications of this that we have heard today. Make us a people who would cry out, ready to say to you, Jesus, have mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.